Turn to the book of John, the Gospel of John. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this Lord's day, for gathering us together as your people. We pray now that as your word is opened, that you would do what only you can. Open up our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and our mind by your spirit, that we would receive your word for what it is, the word of God and not the word of men. May it be your truth that is spoken and nothing but, and we pray that your word would accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Be glorified in us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin a new series this morning in the Gospel of John. Now, for those who are visiting, our usual practice here is to simply take books of the Bible and to preach through them uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, that being our firm conviction that all of Scripture is breathed out by God and therefore profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. As Jesus says in John, my sheep hear my voice. And so our conviction is that the very best thing that we as pastors could do as Christ's under shepherds is to give the word of God to the people of God. To proclaim, explain, and apply scripture, trusting that the spirit of God will cause the word of God to come alive in the hearts of the people of God. And so we begin a new series in John's gospel. Now, the, the gospel of John begins with what scholars refer to as John's prologue. Now, this is a unique passage of scripture, and one of the many interesting things about it is that it functions as something of a table of contents for the rest of John's gospel. And what I mean by that is that in this introduction, John introduces themes that he will revisit later in his gospel. And so by working through the prologue, we can actually get a bit of a preview of where we're going to be going through the rest of John's gospel. So if you have your Bibles open, let's read together verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that first phrase is likely a familiar one. Right, kids, what does that remind us of? We hear that phrase, in the beginning. Well, that sounds like Genesis chapter 1, doesn't it? Right, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is likely an intentional reference as even the Greek words that, God, that John uses for in the beginning are identical to those found in the Septuagint, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis 1 verse 1. Uh, so John, we should note here, does not at all contradict what is found in Genesis. 
Rather, he is simply giving us more detail. And notice, if you look to the text, he actually backs up even further than where we begin in Genesis. Now, I remember a while back, I had a chronological Bible reading plan, uh, which is quite interesting, where you end up reading through Scripture in the order that the events took place. Right? It's, it's quite an interesting way to read. Uh, but this particular plan actually missed this detail. Right? My plan began in Genesis 1 as the first event that took place. But if you read John 1, you notice this actually backs us up before Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1 begins with God's work of creation. John backs us up further and says, In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, what is meant by the word? D.A. Carson writes that the underlying term, logos, was used so widely and in such different contexts in first century Greek that there have been many suggestions as to what it might mean that have been put forward. So we could ask, right, and you've probably heard different preachers apply this, is John drawing from Greek Stoicism, which saw the Logos as the rational principle by which everything exists and is the essence of the human soul? Or perhaps drawing from Philo, influenced by Plato, where the Logos is the ideal archetypical man, uh, the form from which all reality is but a copy, if you know Platonism. Uh, well, D.A. Carson and others argue that there is actually a much simpler explanation. If you look through John's gospel, you will find that there is one particular source that John quotes and alludes to constantly, and it is not Plato or the Stoics, but rather John is constantly drawing from the Old Testament scriptures. And so this is the best place for us to start. Again, especially given the connection we see in John 1.1, a likely an intentional reference to Genesis 1.1. Uh, so this is where we would be pointed if we want the background for what John means. We would not go to the Greeks or the Stoics, but we would go to the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, what is the Logos? What is the Word of God? Well, as Genesis records, it was through God's word that he created. Right? You read the creation account and what you see is God sends forth his word. Right? God said and then there was and it was good. God said, then there was and it was good. God created through his word. We see as well through the Old Testament that God reveals himself through his word. Think of Isaiah 38 verse 4 says, The word of the Lord came to Isaiah as God would reveal his will through his word. As well, D.A. Carson writes, When some of God's people faced illness that brought them to the brink of death, God sent forth his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. So we see through the Old Testament, God's word effects deliverance and judgment. So we could summarize it all this way to say, God's word, the Logos and the Old Testament, is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and redemption. 
And I think that gives us a good idea of what John is drawing at as we move forward. Now, this has admittedly been rather complicated. Some of you might be sitting here going, what is all of this about? And I remember when I memorized this passage as a kid in Sunday school, I could recite it word for word. I had no idea what John was talking about. What is this word? So let's bring this down to a very simple level. What is John actually talking about here? What is this word of God, this logos of God? Well, you can look down with me in your text to verse 14. And I think this is where we get the key. Notice what it says about the word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So catch the answer there. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So whatever John is talking about with this word, he's saying this word became a man, put on human flesh and lived with his people. And he says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. So there we go, kids. Who is the only begotten son of God? the Father, Jesus, the Christ. So here we have our key. Now let's back up to the beginning, to John 1. Now we know that John's talking about Jesus when he mentions the word. And let's follow what John says. In the beginning was the Son, was the pre-incarnate Son, the word. And the Son was with God, and the Son was God. Now, before we unpack this, let us just note for a moment what we're looking at here. John introduces his gospel, and he tells us something incredibly significant about Jesus. So when we talk about Jesus, if we have a proper understanding of who he is, we must realize we are not just talking about some Middle Eastern carpenter from the first century. But as John's prologue demonstrates, we are looking at the absolute beginning point of all things. The true source of light, of life, and of creation itself. Notice we have gone back before Genesis 1 to find the ultimate starting point. In the beginning, before creation, there was the Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through him all things were made, and apart from him was not anything made that was made. The Son was with the Father in the beginning, and he, uh, pardon me, he was with God, and as, as the words imply, he was distinct from God. Being with him, he is distinct from him. And yet the Son also, it says, was God. Now, how do we make sense of this? How can he be with God and therefore distinct from God, and yet also at the same time be God himself? Well, the historic Christian answer to this conundrum has been the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, the Bible is very clear. Uh, if we simply take all the biblical data, we are actually forced to this conclusion. 
The Bible is very clear that there is only one God, right? Think of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God, and yet, if you read through Scripture, you find that there are three persons that are all referred to as God, and yet those three persons are all clearly distinguished from one another. And so this passage is a good example of this in relation to the Son, right? The Word, the eternal Son, was with God, and He was God. God the Father and God the Son are distinguishable from one another. They are separate persons, and yet they are both God. So kids, you can remember it like this. If you want to remember how to formulate the doctrine of the Trinity, somebody asks you the question, you can say there is one being of God, but three persons of God, right? Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three persons. And so we see from this text that this idea of saying, well, multiple persons, but only one God, is not something we made up for ourselves. Rather, this is the conclusion that Scripture requires us to confess. Right? This is simply our attempt to be faithful to all the biblical data. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And here we come to our first theme introduced in our prologue that will get revisited later in John. And that theme is the pre-existence of Christ. <clears throat> we see later on, chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus said to the Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And we'll explain more of these I am statements of Jesus when we come to them later in our series. Uh, but for now, just notice what Jesus reveals about himself. He says, I predate Abraham. I go back before Abraham, and he even associates himself here with the divine name, the I am, that is Yahweh in the Old Testament. We see as well in chapter 17, verse 5, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus says, he prays, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The glory I had with you before the world existed. So we see this theme get repeated. This theme brought up in the prologue gets repeated through John. And that is Christ Jesus did not become God in some kind of adoptionistic way. Rather, he has always existed. Before Abraham was, I am. Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so we draw from this. Jesus Christ is therefore worthy of worship. He is worthy of worship. 
And I remember a time in my life where I was being challenged on that question. This question, is Jesus really God? The question of the deity of Christ. And I remember a moment of doubt in myself where I was panged with guilt, right? What if I was wrong? It would be a serious and grave sin to worship anything or anyone other than God. So is Jesus God? Did I know this from the scriptures? And so I ask for us, do we have this idea, this concept, this doctrine clearly established in our minds as the testimony of scripture? Right, kids, do you have a solid grasp of who Jesus really is? Now, not just because you've heard it from your parents or your pastor told you, but have you yourselves seen it from the scriptures? Right, here it is from the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So you can make a mental note of this for yourself. If you ever doubt or question the deity of Christ, if you're ever challenged on whether or not Jesus is truly God, then keep John chapter one in your mind. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus Christ is therefore worthy and deserving of our worship. Moving on in verse 3, we have even more evidence of the deity of Christ. Let's read this together. It says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, I've never had a Jehovah's Witness come to my door, but I've heard that at one point, John 1 is where they would take you to try to debate the deity of Christ. Right, the JWs would teach that Jesus is not eternally God, but that he was a created being, uh, that there was when he was not, as the Arians would say. Uh, they would focus then on the first part of John and try to debate the Greek with people on their doorsteps, because people know so much about Greek. Um, and then they would show you their New World Translation, uh, which translates verses 1 and 2 differently. What's interesting, though, is that even in their translation, they don't escape the weight of verse 3. Right? Notice what verse 3 says. Everything that was made was made through him. And apart from him was not anything made that was made. So you see the trouble for the Jehovah's Witnesses. They say that Jesus is a God, lowercase g, that he is a created being, and yet John 1 verse 3 clearly says that everything that was made was made through Christ. So if you could take a giant box and put in that box everything that ever came into being, everything that God created, everything that began to exist at some point, everything, if you could put it all in a box, everything in that box, John says, was created through the Son. So here's the challenge for the JWs. How can the Son be in that box? Right? Everything in the box was created through him. How can he himself be in that box, in the category of created things? 
Apart from him was not anything made that was made. And so even with their intentionally twisted translation, they can't escape the testimony to the deity of Christ in this text. He is uncreated. He is eternal. Every created thing was created through Christ, through the word. If it was made, if it was created, if it had a beginning, it was made through Christ. Now, there is a world worldview-altering implication that comes from understanding this reality. If Christ made everything, then this means he owns everything. Colossians 1 verse 15 draws this out. Speaking of the Son, you can turn with me there. Colossians 1 verse 15. Speaking of the Son, the Apostle Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and catch this, and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So everything that was made, Paul says, whether in heaven or on earth, in the spiritual realm or in the physical realm, all things were created through and for the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul calls Christ the firstborn in the sense that he is the heir of all things. Right? They are his inheritance. They are his. They were made through and for him. And so everything that exists relates inevitably to him. If Christ is the maker and heir of all things, if he is Lord of all and it is all intended for him, then there is no possible neutrality. There is no area of life in which Christ's lordship has nothing to say. As Abraham Kuyper put it, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It is his. He made it. He owns it. It was made for him. Christ owns everything. It all properly belongs to him. And this really hits us where we live. Christ owns you. Christ owns your family, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, whether you or they acknowledge and bow to him or not, we are all creatures, created beings, and therefore we all fall into the category of things that were made through and for the Lord Jesus Christ. Beginning to grasp this reality changes your outlook. For us as Christians, there is a certain boldness that this ought to bring. 
Now, especially if we've grown up in an environment that was largely dominated by secularism, it can be easy for us to get the impression that we're not allowed to talk about our faith. We can begin to think that talking about Jesus, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming his lordship, is a topic that's off limits in certain places. I remember talking with some Christian teenagers a few years back, and their impression was, whether or not it had actually been stated to them, their impression was that they were not allowed to talk about their faith at school. They, in fact, would have felt somewhat rebellious if they did so. Now, just consider how this doctrine can change your perspective. If Christ is the ruler of all things, if he is the one through whom and for whom all things were made, if he is in the highest seat of authority in the cosmos, then who is the truly rebellious one in that scenario? The school. The teenager speaking openly of his faith is simply living as a loyal citizen in the kingdom of the one true king of all things. So the rebels in this case, those who are bucking against authority, are all those who would oppose the king. The true rebels or any who would declare that there is any space or place in all creation in which the claims of Christ do not apply. They are the rebels. And they will have to give an account to the one true eternal king when they stand before him on judgment day. In the beginning was the word And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Let this reality bring us great boldness as we proclaim the crown rights of Christ over every area of life. Continue on. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So to continue here in the creation theme, John tells us that the word, the logos, the son, is the original source of life. Christ, the eternal word, possesses life. He is life. In him is life. And he is, in fact, the source of all life. Now, all created things have their being derivatively. We have life because God is life. Our life, our being, is contingent upon him. That is, we are dependent for our existence in an ongoing way upon Christ Acts 17, 28 says of God, In him we live and move and have our being. 
Hebrews 1 verse 3 says of the Son, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Christ sustains the universe, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, I know this one can be tough for us to understand, as the world to us seems so stable that it can be tempting to view it as if the world itself were self-sustaining. But that is the idea of deism, right? The idea that God simply set things in motion at creation, but now has stepped back and is just watching everything run by itself. But notice that is not the biblical picture. Rather, we see Christ actively upholds the universe by the word of his power, right? The universe is not a wind-up toy that God cranked and cranked and cranked and now lets it spin, watches it go. Uh, it is more like the relationship between a guitar player and the song that he is playing, right? The song continues to exist for as long as the guitar player keeps on strumming, right? Why is the world so stable? Because Christ is upholding it by the word of his power. Why do you continue to exist? Why don't your molecules just go flying apart? Because Christ keeps on speaking your name. In him, we live and move and have our being. In him was and is life. Christ is the maker and he is the sustainer. We must understand that God alone has aseity, that is self-existence. And so we may remember this was the idea that God communicated to Moses when he first told him his name. Anybody remember at the burning bush, uh, Moses asked God, what shall I say to this people? Who is this God? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent me to you. Exodus 3, 14. I am the God who is, the God who has life and being in himself, the God who is the source and sustainer of everything else that is. God alone, therefore, has self existence. He alone has no need of anyone or anything else, but rather he is the one who is upholding everything else that exists. And there is nothing and nobody that causes him to exist. Now that is the doctrine of aseity, the self-existence of God, the God who is, the I am. And we see this applied to Christ. In him was life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, the light of men is possibly here referring to knowledge, right? We think light is that by which we see objects distinctly. Uh, even in scripture, we see to be enlightened is to come to a fuller or more proper understanding. And so not only is Christ the source of life, but as Colossians 2 verse 3 says, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom 
and knowledge. D.A. Carson points out as well that light and life are almost universal religious symbols. He writes, in John's usage, they are not sentimental props, but they are ways of focusing on the excellencies of the word. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Genesis 1 records for us that when God first made the heavens and the earth, darkness was over the face of the deep until the word of God went forth. Let there be light. And there was light. The light shines in the darkness, and where the light shines, the darkness flees. And so John is making these connections, saying that in some sense, Christ is the light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Uh, so possibly they're speaking of reason, rationality, wisdom, and knowledge, and also perhaps symbolically. He is the light which shines in the darkness and scatters it. And we'll actually see these themes picked up quite often throughout John's gospel. Jesus is life and light. First, Jesus is life and he came to bring life. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 10, verse 10, Jesus said that he has come so that his sheep might have life and have it abundantly. John 3, 16, I think we all know this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 20, verse 31, probably the single clearest purpose statement that we get for the gospel of John. John tells us that he wrote down the things he did so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Secondly, we will see through John that Jesus is light. John 8 verse 12, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 3, 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John 12, 46. Jesus said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Perhaps the easiest way to understand John here is if we take this as John intending to set the stage for the themes that will follow in his gospel. So just as darkness was once over all of creation, so also... Sin had plunged creation back into darkness. Darkness taking on moral overtones. 
As Jesus said, men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So darkness in John's gospel gets used as a symbol of evil, of blindness, of sin, and of death. Though man was made in the image of God, though we were given both light and life from Christ, the logos, the word, mankind sinned against God. We rebelled against our king. In Adam's sin, mankind joined Satan's rebellion against God. As a result, we are now all born in the darkness of sin. We are born with a sinful nature, selfish, cruel, and dark. Ephesians chapter 2 describes mankind as being dead in transgression and sin. It tells us that by nature, we are children not of God, but children of wrath. We love darkness. Our appetites are twisted. That is, we desire the wrong things. We walk in darkness. We are under the fist of its dominion. Do you not see this in yourself? How frequently do you do the things you don't want to do? You can make grand plans for yourself, thinking of the good you want to do, but instead of this, you turn back to your old selfish ways. Can we not all relate with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7? But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. There is something so strong in our nature that Paul calls it a law, a principle, a power, so strong that he says he is held captive to the law of sin within. By nature, we are in darkness. As Jesus says in John, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. We know as well the wages of sin is death. Man has rebelled against God. Darkness had fallen upon creation. We are under the curse of sin. But thanks be to God, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Word, the Logos, the eternal Son of God, came into the world. He became a man. The light of the world entered the world. And as we'll see throughout the Gospel of John, he was opposed by the kingdom of darkness at every turn. Finally culminating in a conspiracy that led to his crucifixion, his death upon a cross. The one in whom is life tasted death. But what the kingdom of darkness did not know is that they were unwittingly serving the purposes of God. Right? Remember, Satan is the one who entered Judas. They did not know they were serving the purposes of God. For Christ's death on the cross 
was the very means that God was using to reconcile the world to himself. Christ's death was not a victory for the kingdom of darkness. It was the very means that God had planned to defeat the kingdom of darkness. For Christ took the penalty that was due to the sins of his people upon himself. He bore the wrath of God. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, Galatians 3.13. And the darkness could not overcome the light of the world. Death could not hold the author of life. Christ rose from the dead. Christ ascended to heaven. And Hebrews 10 verse 12 tells us that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Christ came as the light of the world. The darkness could not overcome him. Through his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and intercession, Christ has defeated and is defeating the powers of sin, death, and darkness. He now reigns as king of the universe. The creation first made through and for him, which fell then into darkness, Christ has redeemed. He has purchased it for himself. And so we see in this, Christ was the agent both of creation and of new creation. He is our creator and our redeemer. He is the rightful king, the heir of all things. Let us understand there will be no elections for the office of king of the universe. When we proclaim the gospel, we are not trying to get people to make Jesus Lord. Rather, we are proclaiming that he is Lord, that he is king, that he made the world and redeemed it, and that there is now a glorious offer of a royal pardon given to all the rebels who will turn from their sin and bow in humble submission to the one true king. Christ came to earth so that sinners, rebels like us, could be reconciled to God. In him was life, and in him is life. Friends, if you do not yet know Christ, repent and believe. Turn from your sin, turn from your rebellion, and bow in humble submission to the one true king. Put your faith in Christ, throw yourself upon his mercy, trusting in his finished work, his life, his death, his resurrection, and you will be saved. He is the true king, the rightful king. Brothers and sisters, those who do know Christ, in him is life. We know, of course, of the promise of eternal life, and that is where we place our ultimate and final hope. 
but following Christ is also the way of life here and now. All things were made through Christ. Remember, apart from him was not anything made that was made. And so as the maker, he also knows best how we ought to live. He made us for himself. He has declared that he is the way. In him is life and light. And so to the degree that you wander from his ways, to the degree that you depart from his paths, you will find strife and darkness. For that is all that sin can deliver. So brothers and sisters, walk in his ways. Worship him with every part of your life. Read the word. Pray to God. Meditate on the word. Sing, praise, ascribe glory to his name every day. Work, serve, help, use the gifts that you've been given. Evangelize, disciple, encourage, and build up others. There is no part of life where Christ's claims do not apply which is glorious because this means that there is no part of life that is not meaningful. When we realize that all things were created through and for Christ, we see then that even the seemingly mundane has now been infused with meaning. In any task we perform, we can and should seek to glorify God, to exalt Christ, and we do this through our thoughts, our attitudes, and our intentions. We orient our lives toward our King. We approach every task with the aim of glorifying the King for whom all things were made. For in this there is meaning. In becoming Christians, we have now been reoriented with the purpose for which we were made. And so in all things, we find meaning, light, and life in Christ. Amen.